Welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, the show for business owners looking to acquire, scale, or exit a business. Before we get on with today's program, we just wanted to let you know that the Buy, Grow, Sell team have been working really hard to come up with more resources that add more value to your journey. This includes a range of webinars, tools, and other events, including an online summit where we get some of the industry's leading experts to come and share their insights. If you'd like to know more, go to buygrowsell.com forward slash events. Enjoy the show. What does it take to build a company and sell it for $43 million in cash with no earnout? Now, Stuart Crane is my next guest on the show, and he and his partner, Jeff, happened to meet by chance, but had all the ingredients to start a company that was profitable in their first year. Now, this was no overnight success, as it took 20 years to build this company. But in this episode, Stuart shares some of the key ingredients that made all the difference. He also describes how they tried to sell the business a few times and the reasons why a $34 million deal did not go through. Now, this episode is packed full of insights, which will help business owners from all walks of life. This is Stuart Crane. Hey, Stuart, welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Simon. My pleasure indeed. Um, really appreciate you come, uh, coming on the show and making the time to talk to me. So, Stuart, you, you know, I know we're going to, uh, we're going to talk to you about your, your company, Definitive Home Care Solutions. And you'll remind me, no doubt, of the brand of the product that we're, we're going to get into a little bit. But um, maybe you could kick off for me and just, just give us a little bit of the background, how you started the company, you know, the, what, what the early days looked like. Sure. So the early days, as a matter of fact, are quite, quite some time ago, back in the kind of early 90s, my specialty was actually developing software, writing code, writing software, but specifically database software. So you know, as you might recall, back in the 90s, a lot of systems or a lot of uh, companies were on pen and paper or cards and that sort of thing. And they all wanted to automate or put their, their customer base online, but not online on the internet, but just on a computer at all. So my specialty was building database management systems, and this was pre-internet. Um, so I was working on a number of projects here in the Columbus, Ohio area for companies that wanted to take their pen and paper and their card-based system, <laughs> filing system, and put it you know, into computer systems. So these software programs that I was writing allowed them to pull up patients if it was healthcare, just customers if there were customers. And one of the projects that I was working on um, kind of took off and became the company that uh, that we founded. So uh, kind of get to the punchline of all this. I started a company in 1993 with my business partner for with $400. He put in $200 and I put in $200 and we had 400 bucks and we started a company and um, built it up, built it up, kind of buy. And then we regrew up and did some acquisitions. So the buy part came in there as well. And then we sold it for $44 million in cash. And and the neat thing was, is my partner and I were still just 50-50 owners in the business. We never had any outside capital or any debt or anything. So um, he got half of the $44 million and I got the other half. So that was kind of a long story short, but um, it really started with me developing software and knowing how to build systems. Yeah, yeah, cool. I'm sure I read, I read somewhere that you started this in your home basement. Oh, it's like, oh my God, it's another one of those stories. 
<laughs> right, exactly. So I was doing kind of these um, software projects just as a solo entrepreneur for these companies in Columbus. And the funny thing, Simon, is my backyard neighbor who, you know, our, our backyards butted up to each other and you see people outside and you say, hey, what's going on? You, you know, you kind of shake hands. What do you do? What do you do? So I met uh, my partner's name is Jeff Johnston over the backyard fence. And this was in the early 90s, probably 1992 or so. And um, the first thing I asked somebody is, what do you do? What do you do? And, and I said, I was working on software projects for companies in Columbus. And he's like, oh, that's interesting because I work for the biggest hospital here in Columbus and we don't have software to track all of our home care patients. So if you're familiar with home care, that's, you know, pa uh, nurses going out and taking care of patients in the home and also giving them intravenous medication. So it's like IV infusion medication. So the hospital needed a um, patient management system to track all of the information about their patients who are on home care services. So in 1992-ish, we started um, a project working um, for the hospital, building this software, and um, we basically made it work so that they could enter all the information about the patient and then just print um, the documents. And so instead of having paper charts, which you're you know, familiar with all the paper charts, it now becomes electronic. So this was the beginning of what they call EHR or electronic health records. Okay. Uh, EMR and medical records, they call them different things. So this is the very beginning of that. So we did start the company in my basement because that's where I was working on all, all these projects. I just worked from home and I would drive out and install software on floppy disks to my customers. But uh, yeah, we started it in my basement. Yeah, yeah. I remember describing, um, I mentioned floppy disk in a conversation with my kids and they kind of gave me that curious look, like, what the hell is that? <laughs> right. And that's exactly what the first, uh, you know, development was on, was on these floppy disks. We'd write the software and then we'd have to get it to the customers. Well, we have to ship it to them. And, you know, it did transition to CD-ROM and then they would download it off a bulletin board, <laughs> you know, modems and dial up. But you're right, Simon, in the very beginning, it was floppy disks. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, like, and I'm not a software expert like yourself, but I, the, the, it seems to me that the software industry kind of has really evolved and changed over the years. It's, um, you know, I think, you know, if we went back to the, to the early 90s, and, and once again, this is just my outside layman's sort of perspective, but it seemed like software, it, it, it didn't have the gloss and that it has these days. You know, it seemed to be all about the hardware and all these lot of other things. And so somewhere along the line, the, the shift has happened because we seem to be selling a lot of software companies these days and the, the, the multiples and valuations they get are off the charts compared to traditional style businesses. So did, did you see or am I way off the mark here or, or, or did you sort of, I mean, you've lived that industry. So yeah, what, what, what was that like? Yeah, so it's true. It basically, you know, what we found was that by creating software, something that created value for the customers because it saved them so much time and effort doing things by hand, the value was so high. But yet the cool thing about it is that our costs were relatively low because we were really just coding and then helping our customers to implement the software and make it work. And then we have a lot of costs involved with staff, you know, basically a help desk and all that. So it's really the value is, you know, encapsulated 
calculated in, in code mostly because it's programming code um, and that's why these valuations are high. But it's not just the code, it's the people behind the software and the company that's behind whatever it is that you're delivering, mostly in our case was software. So we tried to hire the very best people that we could that were smart to know how the software worked and be able to help the customers really get the value out of the software as much as possible. And then they would pay us pretty handsomely because it saved them so much time. So our model was we would sell them the software once. And again, this, this is a, you know, a good point you make about this is the early 90s. So things were different back then. But when we started selling, we were able to sell the software kind of on a one-time basis. And we could sell it for 10,000, 20,000, 50,000, even upwards of six figures, we could sell the software and then we could still get uh, recurring revenue or maintenance fees you know, revenue on a monthly basis because we were helping them to train them, implement the software, and then of course help desk, you know, 1-800, you know, call into the help desk and, and for technical support and so forth. So the business model was they pay us to purchase the software and then we've got them and then we charge them on a monthly or quarterly basis for their service fees. And that was very successful to us because we were trying to get all the home care companies to come to our software and use ours versus our competitors. Um, but you're right. I mean, software really has taken off. And then once it moved to the web, then you don't even have to ship the software out. You just say, go to the website. You know, and that's what everybody's used to now is just going to a dot com or just going to the app store and getting the apps. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. After everything sort of shifted to the cloud and whatnot, um, I mean, is it, uh, well, I mean, you sold in 2013, I guess the cloud was sort of becoming more of a thing then, but it's, um, did, did you guys shift your model at some point where you went, like shift away from the upfront fee to more of a just regular subscription model? Well, that was interesting because we were working on that right at the time of the sale is moving things out to the cloud or to the internet. And and as you know, and a lot of people maybe, maybe not know this is that healthcare is kind of they were kind of trailing. They're behind the times as far as automating. So they had pen and paper, pen and paper much longer than other companies. And then once they got it on computers, they didn't move to the internet because people were scared, not people, but the healthcare companies were scared. They're kind of, you know, a little bit, you know, delaying moving to the internet because they were worried that the patients didn't want to have their medical records out on the internet somewhere. So they were so slow to adopt these cloud-based tools. And that was right about when we sold the company, 2013, when we, we did the sale, was there were a lot of the hospitals and home care companies and outpatient companies that were looking at and say, okay, we can go to the cloud, we can do it that way. And um, so, you know, the acquisition that, um, that happened was a roll up with a number of companies that were moving in that direction. And so the buyer, our buyer basically was looking at putting all these companies together and then putting it out online to make it kind of a one-stop software for, you know, outpatient ambulatory services. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Um, and, and, and you can understand why people are worried about having their information online. I mean, you, you probably wouldn't have seen this in your media over the, over in the States, but you know, we've had some major hacks happen oh, here in wow. Australia. Yeah. One of the big telco, the second biggest telco company and one of the biggest private health insurers. So Medibank just got hacked all of their customer data and literally because they're not paying the ransom just this morning, I saw a, uh, a headline saying that the, the hackers are starting to release the information on the dark web. Oh, that's just, it, it breaks your heart. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's the one thing I guess as a tech company that you just you know you don't want to happen, right? It's it, uh, is, is that sort of security, but um, security breach. Um, can I can I take a go back a little bit here again? I'm I'm curious. You know, you started this company. You know, looking at your background, obviously you've worked for people. You've done you've built programs. You've done stuff like this before. So when you started this company with four hundred bucks, I mean, was there a, a point? Well, well, where in that sort of your journey did you kind of realize, hey, we're, we're actually onto something here? Like this, this has real potential to be something amazing. Yeah, I, it was actually pretty early on, I will say, because my partner, Jeff Johnson, who you know I met in the backyard, like I was talking about, he knew the business of home care or home infusion and specialty pharmacy. He knew that business inside and out and how it worked and how it operated. And I knew software. I knew how to build um, programs, write code, and make the software work. So we had a good team. Now, to your question, we quickly got I would say two or three or four customers that bought the software, implemented it, and started using it, entering their patients and typing your patients right into the system and bringing them up and printing it. And we got just rave reviews like, oh my God, I can't believe how we worked before we had this software. So what we did, Simon, is we immediately enlisted them as referrals or you know references. And when we would go out to sell new customers, we would you know obviously demo the program and talk about how great it is, but we really use them and say, call, you know, one guy named was Conrad. We say, call Conrad, and he would just rave about us left and right. And that kind of sells it right there when, you know, a peer of yours, like a company that does the same thing you do, but they might be in, you know, Nashville, Tennessee, but you're in Bloomington, Indiana. You're not really competitors, but they do the exact same thing you do. And when they're saying, oh, this thing is so cool, it's so great, we love it, just buy it. We were, we were able to sell software very quickly and at a pretty good clip, and we would sell enough, much more than we had you know, costs to basically produce the software and maintain the software. So we were profitable from pretty much day one. And then I think as far as, you know, when we saw it really being big and being able to make really good money for, you know, my partner and I and, and the employees as well, is when the industry really grew. So when your industry that you're selling into grows and it becomes, you know, something that's growing, then they need services and they'll pay for that because they have to grow. So, you know, obviously your whole podcast and your whole business is all about M&A. Well, it wasn't just our M&A situation where we did acquire a few companies and then we ultimately sold ours. The bigger M&A came in our customer base. So in America, and, and I'm sure quite this in Australia as well, the home care companies were basically being bought out by the bigger home care companies. And there was a lot of what they call roll-ups where it was like, okay, we want to have one Midwest-based company that owns 10, 20, 30 home care companies instead of just mom and pop, mom and pop, mom and pop. So um, we did realize when that started happening that since we have the software that's really running these operations, they're going to grow and they're going to basically need more what they call seats or they're going to need more software essentially. And they'll pay more and we can just charge more just because it was more valuable to them. And so it was pretty early on that we knew it was going to be you know, a good business. And then it really started paying off one once the industry grew. Yeah, wow. Yeah, Stuart, gosh, there's so many fantastic little insights in, in what you were just describing there. I mean, you, you know, for me, you know, starting at the beginning there, you, you, obviously you knew software, which is the key, key component of what you're going to build, but having a business partner 
who fundamentally knew his industry and knew the problems inside out, knew the pain points, knew what it cost to continue doing business as usual. I mean, for those who might be listening to this and thinking about starting a new venture, I mean, clear problem, clear demand, clear, you know, I've seen this, I'm sure you've probably seen it too, where people come to you with ideas and it's almost like the idea is really new and it's a great idea, but there's no necessarily no immediate market for it. And, you know, I've had people ask me to, you know, would I like to invest in their business? And I keep saying to them that, and their pitch is almost, look, this is a brilliant idea. All I need is money to go market this thing and we'll create the market. And I'm like, you've lost me. Like, Right. If you can't have a clear problem statement that you understand and people are willing to pay to solve that problem today, like that's just too hard. Um, it is too hard, yeah. Yeah. So I can see how your your partnership, your business marriage, you know, came together so well and got such early traction. You know, combine that understanding of the problem with raving fans. I mean, you just that's a that's a wonderful combination for for early success. So. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it was kind of right place, right time. We say that, you know, we've said that for 20 years. It's like we're kind of right place, the right time. But at the same time, we recognized it and we said, OK, we still have to build the right software and it, and it has to work. And, um, you know, we had some hiccups along the way, you know, building the business. And people ask me, they're like, well, what? you got to have mistakes. You had to make mistakes and you had to basically have some problems along the way. You know, what were your biggest, you know, issues that you had? And one of the things we had quite a bit of that we, you know, we had to overcome was bugs. I mean, everybody's heard of bugs. Everybody's heard of software problems, software issues, bugs, and obviously getting hacked and that sort of thing. We didn't have hacking so much because we weren't online. It was, you know, obviously just client server software, but we had bugs and um, we had to squash these bugs. And some of these were bad. I mean, we had one bug, Simon, that would actually delete the entire patient file of the oh. customers. And this was very early years. I mean, this was actually early stages, probably the first year or second year. And, and we lost a customer because of it, because they were just like, we can't just have our patient database just be gone. And that's what happened. Um, and so they had to do, create backups, which we helped them to do so that if that happened, they can get their data back. But it was our fault. <laughs> you know. So anyway, one thing that we, we, we really struggled with in the early days you know, was bugs and software problems, or the program was just so slow, like it would have the hourglass and would just be spinning and spinning and be like, well, I got to get this. Is, this needs to print. <laughs> this needs to happen. You know, I need this report now. And it would just take forever. So, you know, those were, I guess, engineering problems, you know, that you would call them now. But back then it was just like writing better programming, you know, so it was it was challenging. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I don't think you can sort of grow any company without obstacles, right? I mean, you're always going to have problems in any business. But like everything in life, I think it's, it's kind of how you face the problems and how you deal with them that actually makes the difference. <laughs> right, exactly. And we, we jumped on that and we did the best we could possibly do to have the minimal number of you know, bugs and errors and then speed, they call it now performance and that sort of thing. You know, it, you don't want to wait for things to happen. And, and people are you know, used to just think you go to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or whatever, you their feed and the feed just instantly pops up. Well, they have, you know, just they're spending millions of dollars optimizing that. So it does come up right away because it has to work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's funny how um, impatient we are these days. And okay, technology is much better than it was and therefore your expectations go up. And But you're right. I mean, if you open Facebook and your Facebook feed takes three seconds, everyone's going, what the hell's going on? Right. And I, and I kind of keep laughing with my kids saying, 
Man, back in the day, we had dial-up internet, mate. You had to wait for the whole fax noise to start before you even connected. It was like it just took time. And right. <laughs> Exactly. Or you go prior to, you know, the internet or even computers and people just read magazines and, you know, read books and saw that. And it's like, you know, it's just different, you know, but, but our key thing was just creating value for the customer so that they could do things better and faster and serve their patients, you know, better. And they really liked the fact that they had a software program that they could log into in the morning and see the work that they had to do all day long. And it, this worked for not just, you know, um, uh, the the pharmacist in the in the company work for the billing people and for you know the inventory management people for the managers and so the cool thing about the software was it worked for everyone in the organization so it was their de facto um, system that they use to run their business. And so, you know, you probably heard the term stickiness, you know, you want to be as sticky as possible for, for your customers. Well, our customers, they, they couldn't, you know, give the software back. They had nowhere to go. They had to use the program because all their patients were in there and we did have competitors and that's really, you know, in the buy, grow, sell. I mean, really we did a more grow and then we bought, we actually acquired several companies um, because they were our competitors and we wanted to get their customers and we were getting them one by one here and there. But if we were to acquire those uh, competitors of ours, then we would get all of their customers overnight. And that's what we did. We, we bought we bought two companies that were our competitors and that really increased the value of our business significantly because we had that many more customers and we were able to make, you know, move more towards a monopoly where we own the whole market. Yeah, look, and that's that's such a, an interesting point. You know, we've talked a lot about growth via acquisition. Um, on this show, in our world, that's kind of the buy, grow, sell thing really is that, you know, really you want to grow a company, there's, there's two avenues, right? You're going to do it organically or you're going to do it via acquisition or some sort of combination of the two, but, you know, maybe if you're ambidextrous. But, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, look, I think it's um, – I think there'd be a lot of people listening to this now who are out there trying to grow their company organically and they understand exactly how hard that is. You know, you, you've got people who are helping you with marketing. You've probably got people doing sales. You've got all your systems trying to track everything and follow up and chase customers and you're out there sort of duking it out with your competitors, sometimes with price pressure on you, and that's hard. Um, you know, every customer can be a bit of a battle, um, whereas this idea of, well, instead of spending money over 12 months on wages and all these other things, you know, or over a couple of years to get X number of customers, perhaps buying that business up front, not only gives you the customers immediately, but can actually in some ways reduce a bit of competitiveness in the market, put, put a little less pressure on your pricing. Oh, it was a home run for us. I mean, you know, we obviously we did the analysis. We had the whole pro forma spreadsheet that, you know, worst case scenario, best case scenario, and then the middle and looking at, you know, what would happen after acquisition? Like, would these customers stay with us? How many would, you know, we would have attrition wise? Could we raise the price on them? How, you know, what, what was all going to happen after we bought the company based on how much we could, you know, pay for that or how much they would take? And it's, it, I think it's one of the smartest things that a company can do if they have the capability to do it. Obviously, it's not the right fit for a lot of companies. But, you know, my partner and I, Jeff, in the early days, we were like, oh, could we get bought out someday? Could we, got, you know, sell this company? And we were young. We were like, oh, maybe we could sell it. And we, we met a, a financial advisor one time. He's like, well, if you really want to make this company, you know, really be worth something, instead of looking for somebody to buy you, why don't you look to buy someone or some other company? And we were like, 
yeah, I guess so. Could we actually do that? And, you know, it took us a few years after that, but we got to a point where we were like, yeah, we could acquire these competitors of ours. And uh, we started, you know, talks with them and so forth. And it took time, you know, like any acquisition. And obviously in your podcast, you talk a lot about, you know, the, the phases that you go through to acquire a company. But uh, we were able to acquire these two companies and it was, it really, you know, spiked our valuation enormously. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, no, no doubt a good step up in growth of, of revenue and all the other metrics. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, you, you, software background, healthcare background, no doubt by the time you did your acquisition, the company had grown and you had other people in the team. Um, but I'm curious, when you decided to do the acquisition, did you engage particular advisors? Did you bring someone in to sort of help sort of run the search and the deal and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, so... I would say probably three or four years prior to doing these acquisitions, we hired an attorney who was our outside counsel that was doing all of our contracting, all of our agreements, all of our legal work, everything legal-wise. He did everything. So we ended up hiring to be our in-house counsel and to work for us full-time. But he was very... Um, very, uh, you know, wanted to help us do more than just legal. He wanted to grow our company. And so we worked on all agreements, did all the legal, but then he was the one that actually said, you know, yeah, we can now, you know, acquire these companies. So we just kind of used, his name was Mike and we used Mike and he would basic, so he was essentially what would have been an outside counsel or an outside advisor, but he was so smart at, and he'd done in these things in the past in his legal work with his own practice that he knew how to do it. So he, basically ran the whole process. He did all the analysis and um, he had the data room and did all the due diligence. And then, you know, we had the negotiation, did the contracting and the agreement, and he did everything on the buy side. And then when we went to sell, he actually did all of our legal work on the sell side. Now, we did use an investment banker broker to you know, go out and put ourselves on the market and do a run a process you know, and all that. But Mike was actually the one that ended up working the, uh, the SPA, the, the stock purchase agreement. Yeah, nice, nice. It's an interesting, um, you know, I think getting your head around that sort of acquisition is, is quite a leap for a lot of people. So I think it's... Typically, I find you know you need somebody there who who understands the process and says, "Well, I've walked this path many times. I can guide you with it." Um, you know, it so- sounds like you had a great partner in your attorney. Yeah, we were there. lucky in that sense because a lot of companies they do have to go outside, and then that the outside counsel or advisor sometimes they have other stuff going on. But if you find the right advisor, it's the best way to go because you can't do it yourself. We were just kind of lucky because Mike had done this and he was on our payroll and he wanted us to grow and he wanted us to get bigger, so he would kind of spearhead these things. Yeah, nice, nice. Can, can you give me a quick sense of of what the growth trajectory was of the company? I mean, obviously, you and Jeff started the company what did it look like over those 20 years in terms of employees or revenue and all that sort of the sort of key metric? It's interesting. If we looked at our QuickBooks and our looking at our revenue and our costs and everything, it basically does this. I mean, it just does this. It doesn't yeah. ever do this. It yeah, just yeah, yeah. does this. And, you know, when we made the two acquisitions, it may have a little bit of spike and so forth, but it also spiked a little cost as well. But the EBITDA was all pretty close. But I mean, um, just to give you a sense of the time frame, Simon, we started writing this offer in 91, 92 for this hospital here in Columbus, but we founded the company in 1993. April of 1993, and we sold the company in 2013. So that's like 20 years, 
on, you know, to the dot really was like 20 years exactly. And so, um, you know, the first five years were just getting getting some customers on board and getting things working and getting employees and all that. But um, I would say at the peak, and this would be 2012, 2013 when we sold, the peak as far as employees on on our payroll was like 75. So it wasn't a huge company, but it wasn't a little dinky company either. Um, so 75 employees, we were doing about 15 million in revenue but the cool thing was, is at the time of the sale, right around that time when we had 70, 75 employees and we're doing 15 million in, in sales, our costs or our expenses were only around 10 million. So Jeff and I were basically, you know, throwing off like 5 million bucks a year. It was like 4.5 to 5, depending on how you run it per year in profit, essentially right to the bottom line. So he and I were making just, just, you know, a ton of money on an annual basis, um, but yet the, so the company was very profitable. And if so, if you just go back and you ask the question, is what was the you know the growth since it was so just steady? All you'd have to do is say, well, ten years into the company, we were probably doing you know about seven million, throwing off about one and a half or two. You know, you could just kind of run that graph because it was so consistent. Yeah, and and for those listening who won't see the video, when um, when Stuart was was saying like this, he was doing a hand motion, a nice steady steady inclining growth. There was no no none of this hockey stick. There was none of this bouncing up and down like you know peaks and troughs. It was just you know stable, steady, consistent growth over a twenty year period. Yep, yep, and and I think that really helped us. You know, when we did go and sell the company because we had amassed a very you know. Uh, good customer base or a very strong customer base, but it wasn't like an overnight thing where we got some big companies right here and there and they could they could leave. I mean, we really just slowly brought them all on. And then I talked earlier about the M&A in our industry. So a lot of that was due to the bigger companies buying the smaller companies and they just grew so that so that we grew and it was very steady. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And I, I did some quick math here. You know, you've sort of solved, sounds like, for around nine times EBITDA. Does that sound about right? Right, that's about right. Yeah, cool, cool. That's a great number. Um, you know, a little a little tip here, I think, for anybody listening as well. Um, you know, we've, we've at Exit Advisory Group, we've sold a couple of software companies just in the last few months. And I think the big difference, or one, of, I'll say one of the differences um, that has really impacted valuation of these different companies is, um, I mean, obviously being in software, they're getting interesting valuations compared to traditional businesses. But we've seen quite big variables between them. And one of the factors that we keep getting back from buyers out there, um, and a lot of these buyers are large multinational software aggregators, you know, billion dollar companies who are snapping up businesses. And, and one of those big variables was the growth opportunity going forward. You know, they, they love your history. It's important. It's interesting. It, it, it frames the way they think about you. But if they can't look at your market and say, we can see how we can add our enormous resources and weight to this business and just keep growing it, you know, if you don't have that growth opportunity and an almost limitless market, it can really impact your valuation. Yes. Um, now, interested in your perspective, Stuart, because when you say to me healthcare, you know, you've basically just nailed one of the largest megatrends in the world with aging populations and whatnot. So, you know, can you talk to me just a little bit about that? 
Sure, sure. So, and I totally agree with you a hundred percent and every technology company is going to be doing different things and it, it, it's, it depends on the application of the technology or the software. In our case, a nine times, you know, EBITDA is pretty good. It's not fantastic by any stretch, but it's pretty good and it worked for us. And the reason it wasn't like a 20 or a 30 or 60 times EBITDA is exactly what you're saying. We didn't have this massive, massive growth opportunity because we were growing just really, you know, at a good clip, but they felt like if they could uh, roll up multiple companies, because they bought us and about uh, eight or nine or 10 other companies within a span of a couple years. So it was a roll up of all of these ambulatory software companies for like hospice and home health agencies, um, diabetic supplies, all these different, you know, types of software. We were just one type. Um, so they could put all those together and then they could see the growth, the growth that way. So we, we were admittedly just one piece of the puzzle, but it worked great for us. But I totally agree with you in the fact that you could have technology that if that is, you know, added on to a bigger company that has this and they could, you know, make these synergies happen, then it could be a 20, 30, 50 times EBITDA situation because their earnings could be X, but they could be 20, 60 times X, you know, by putting that together. In our case, nine times earnings, you know, we will take it because it would worked out great for us, you know, but, you know, it's just every scenario is going to be a little bit different. Well, for what it's worth, I reckon 99% of people listening to this are all nodding saying, I'd take nine times EBITDA. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's cool. Um, you mentioned before that you and Jeff had had these sort of little conversation about, hey, maybe we could be bought out. So at, so at some point, so clearly selling and exiting was something that you had talked about during your history of the business. Um, was there a point where that conversation started getting very serious and, and, and you know, when did your exit, real exit planning start to happen? Yeah. So, you know, we, like you said, we always had wondered, oh, could somebody buy us? And it just heated up in probably, you know, the late um, 2007, 2008, 2009, that kind of time, it's kind of heated up because the market heated up and we started to get VC and private equity and investment type companies calling us. And then even, you know, other companies that were kind of tangential to what we were doing, they were, you know, just interested in what we're doing. And then we started to get obviously investment banking firms coming to us because, you know, they want to pitch us on <laughs> their services and say, hey, we could, you know, we could probably get you a pretty penny for your company if we brought you, you know, um, uh, companies like Cardinal Health, McKesson, Marisource, Bergen, and these are big players, you know, Fortune 50 companies that, you know, have tons of money and they need to get into, let's say, home home infusion or IV therapy software and so forth. So we were getting these knocks on the door. Um, so we did start conversations with uh, the investment bankers and some of these competitors and we went down the road and actually we had two unsuccessful um sales of the company. One was through an investment banking firm that they basically said, we're going to get you in a process. We're going to take you out to the market and we're going to, you know, create you a SIM and a book and we can show that. And we went through the whole process about six months or so. And the offers we got were just way lower than we would take because we were throwing off a lot of cash and we, you know, were making a lot of money. So we're like, no, that's not enough. And it was just a failed attempt. And it was no problem. We learned a lot from the process. Um, and then the second failure was can when I, we I actually, yeah, go ahead, Simon. Yeah, can I? Put, I'd love to stop you there because I, I think um, 
you know, that's that's one of the big concerns for business owners is, hey, if I do go down this path, what if it doesn't work out, you know? And, right. um, you know, I, obviously there's a cost to running a process and, you know, look, I think those costs are always relative. If you're making five million bucks a year profit and you dropped a hundred grand on it, you know, it's annoying, but it's not the end of the world. Um, but but you, you mentioned that the offers, so the guys are running a process, they clearly got interest in your business, but it was just that the valuations weren't high enough. Yeah, the valuations weren't high enough. And we, you know, Jeff and I were, let's say we're making, I don't know, 2 million bucks a year in AGI, you know, adjusted gross income. Well, if you if you are making 2 million bucks in AGI, you know, every year and it's pretty much guaranteed, then you're if you sell out, you want to have X to basically, because then you're, you have zero AGI once you sell, because we were only going to sell. And this is something maybe your listeners, you know, need to know is, is we, Jeff and I, and this is just our situation, we were either going to sell the entire company 100% and it's like, okay, they're going to buy it or we're going to sell zero. We're going to just keep doing it because there's obviously a lot of scenarios <laughs> where it's like, well, we'll take, you know, chips off the table and we'll take 50%. That wasn't our deal. We were like, we're going to sell the whole thing. It's all or nothing. So anyway, yes, there was not enough, you know, the offers weren't high enough for us to say, okay, let's say, let's say there were 18 million or 20 million people like, oh, well, you wouldn't take 18 million. Well, you divide that by two, you tax it and you blah, blah, blah. Next thing you know, okay, I have 3 million bucks. It's like, well, I already had two or three million bucks by all the years <laughs> of earning my own money. I, right. You know, we wanted a big payday. So we were like, no, that didn't work out. So, so, and oh, get, to get into your point is it's true that, you know, you go through a process and it does take your eye off the ball a little bit, but we felt like we wanted to learn from this and it wasn't costing us much because the company that, that was doing the process, they would just had a retainer fee and then they, we, we would pay them if, you know, there was a deal. So the retainer fee wasn't a hundred grand. It was more like, you know, five grand a month or something. And so it wasn't a big deal. And we wanted to learn from it. We wanted to see, well, how much is our business worth? Because, you know, people always say it's like something is only worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. Well, that's kind of what we thought. And that was, it's, it's kind of true. Well, then how do you find out what somebody's willing to pay for it? You kind of do have to go through this process. So it was, you know, failure in quotes because we never, you know, we didn't get a buyer. And this was like 2010 or 2009 or something like that. I think it was right around the time where we were looking at, well, let's buy some other companies. But the other failure was when we went directly with one company, they put a bid on us for, I think it was 34 million or something or 33 million. And we're, and at the time we were like, oh, we'll take that. That's going to be great. So we get this LOI for like 34 million and we're like, man, we're going <laughs> to, we're going to sell this thing for 34 million bucks. And we go down this road and we're dealing with one buyer and they were just a nightmare. It was an absolute debacle. They just, this contract was so one-sided and they wanted the moon and the reps and warranties were just out of control. And then, then they actually stopped the process. They were like, they're like, you know, we're putting pencils down. We're done with this. We're not buying you guys. <laughs> so we kind of like just got a whip all over the place. And we ended up just basically, oh, I guess they don't want to buy us anymore, you know, but they did, but they just stopped. So that was, you know, I can talk more about it, but the bottom line is we didn't sell to them. <laughs> No, and look, and, that, and and that's really interesting. I think because there's a couple of things I take out of that as well. Is you know, one when you're dealing with one buyer, that typically is a problem. And I I've seen a lot of business owners fall into the trap of, you know, they get the proverbial tap on the shoulder from somebody really interested. Often it's actually somebody they even sort of know, know reasonably well, whatever it might be. But um, 
The fact that there's only one buyer in the process puts them at a disadvantage. And often after six or nine months of engaging and due diligence and all this sort of stuff, they do get lowballed or they get sort of squeezed on, you know, the money sounds nice, but the terms are terrible. And and they then feel kind of, well, it's really quite a horrible experience, you know, and often they do pull out and they, what a waste of time. And yes, I did get distracted from my business. And, you know, I, I guess my my message here is that if you're going to go down this process and you're going to spend the time and effort it takes to build out a data room and have all the meetings and do all the stuff, then why on earth would you just do all of that for one particular buyer? I mean- For one buyer, yeah, I know. It's, it's not that much more effort to invite others into the process. So, you know, I, I have this old saying, Stuart, is that if you don't put buyers through a robust process, then they will put you through their process. And that's guaranteed to get them a better- That's what happened to us. Yeah. yeah. And the ironic part is we went through, you know, a competitive bid process with investment banker blind, you know, like, I don't know, a couple of years earlier, you know, and, and since it was like, we never got anything going, we thought, oh, well, this is actually the valuation we wanted all along, you know, let's, let's do this, you know? So you're absolutely 100% right. And it, it was a failure. It, it, it was, oh, well, as you say, failure in inverted commas, right? Cause you do learn things from these processes and it's, um, and, and clearly, you know, it's, it no doubt helped you get the ultimate outcome that you got in the end. Um, quick, quick question, you know, some of those learnings, did you make any fundamental shifts to the business after going through those transactions and having them not finalized? Not fundamental, not fundamental because we had the fundamentals right. We were no, we knew we were making good money. We, you know, we had happy customers. We were throwing off a ton of cash, but we just wanted to be a little bit more, I don't know, disciplined if we were going to sell the company. And we're like, we're only going to go back to a process. And then if we go back to a process, we have to have that right number and we have to agree on that. And and we're open to it, but we can't do that again. But no, no real fundamental changes because I don't think we we want or needed any fundamental changes. Now, let me tell you something funny about this, Simon, is basically when we did do our actual or do the process where we ended up selling the company, you, as you know, you basically identify a list of all these companies that you would identify to be potential buyers so you could send them the teaser and then they get the teaser and if they sign the NDA, they get the SIM and all that. Well, we said, we don't even want to put that company on the list. I mean, we had like 60 companies to start with. They weren't there weren't one of the 60 <laughs> because we don't, we don't want to sell to them. You know, we just, just like, no, we don't want, even if, even if they turn out to be, we just don't want to deal with them. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I've actually often found um, working with our clients that they'll have a list in their mind maybe of companies. Sometimes it's one or two, sometimes it's five or 10 or sometimes a few more. Um, I've even had clients say to me, the buyer will only be one of these six companies. And I always sort of have a little chuckle because I'm like, yeah, you know, there's a big world out there. And, and typically when we, we sort of mark out what, what are the features of that company that makes them a good buyer, and then how do we use that information and replicate it and go and research and find a list of other companies, I've often, we've often come back to our clients and said, well, based on the criteria we agreed was important, we've now found 250 other companies that fit that criteria. And, and the looks on their face, they're often really surprised because, you know, we didn't even know the market was that big. I said, yes, well, there's a little combination. It's Australia, there's the US, there's a, there's a bunch of people out there who are interested. So it's, it, it, 
don't limit yourself, I think, is one of the things here ah, totally. in terms of thinking, right? Because at the end of the day, as long as you find the right company that's willing to offer the right terms, the right money and good conditions, that, that's the key, right? It's about the outcome. Well, and, and the fact that the the buyers that are looking, you know, looking at you, the potential buyers that are looking at you, if they know there's more than just six and there's 50 and they know that there's this big pool of potential buyers, that only helps your valuation and helps the situation because, you know, they're competing with more. Yeah, yeah. And I should just say for anyone listening to, you know, we, we don't, uh, uh, we're not putting 250 companies into a due diligence. <laughs> you know, if we had 250 on the list, we might end up with 20 SIMs or 20 information memorandums. If for those who, who you know, aren't familiar with the terminology, but, you know, you're engaging with probably realistically 20 odd and, you know, we're hopeful to get maybe half a dozen offers, but it's, um, you know, it, it's running that robust process to find the potential prospects, screen them, qualify them, make sure that they're serious and do all that before you start engaging as the, as the business owner. So, um, and, and that's the thing about running a process. Um, so um, interesting stuff. Last, last question on the deal, Stuart, if I could. Um, the, the process itself, so from when you guys started actively kind of doing stuff, like how, how long did the process take to go through all those buyers, find the right one, da-da-da-da-da, get an offer, due diligence close? <laughs> uh, probably about nine months, eight, eight to nine months, something like that. I think it started in November when, you know, we basically uh, found out about, you know, we want to go to a process because we, we had multiple people coming to us just like, like, Hey, we want to buy you. So we're like, okay, timeout, timeout. So we went and engaged the investment banker probably January, something like that. Maybe December, January, we, we engaged them. They did the process like January, February, March, April, I think April timeframe we had, um, kind of the, get the bids coming in and so forth. And then we've got an LOI probably in May-ish or whatever. And then June, July was the due diligence and all the contract negotiations. And I think we closed at the end of July, something like yeah, that. Yeah, nice, nice. And uh, LOI for those listening is letter of intent. So um, we, we do use LOIs in Australia a little bit, but there's other terminology. So if you're ever confused about this stuff, please reach out. But um now that's cool. And I think nine months is, you know, it's funny, I'm always saying to our clients, if they want to do this process, you've got to give us 12 months. Now, if we get it done in seven, eight, nine months, whatever it might be, great, excellent. But you've got to allow the process to be able to run its course. And, you know, and it does, it does take time. So, you know, the uh, the last thing you want to do is be taking your eye off the ball with your business during this period too, right? Because, you, you know, you want to keep the numbers going in the right direction. Yeah. And then I think for Jeff and I had going through it, you know, once before and then dealing with the one company and then having Mike, who I talked about earlier, Mike knew all this stuff inside and out. It allowed Jeff and I to kind of sit back and yeah, we were engaged, but we didn't have daily, daily, every you know hour. Oh, look at this, this is so it didn't really tax us too much going through the whole process. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Um, so that's been awesome. I, you know, congratulations. I mean, clearly a life-changing, uh, you know, experience and transaction. And, you know, it's, it's um, you know, it's just wonderful seeing business owners who've done the hard yards being able to cross that finish line and, and end well on, you know, and on their own terms, which, you know, is what we talk a lot about here. Um, we've got a couple of minutes. Maybe, maybe you could tell me, what, what, give us a little bit of insight. What are you doing these days? Well, you must be working on some pretty cool projects. 
Yeah, yeah. So I um, kind of just stepped back for a while after we sold the company, just, uh, you know, did a lot of family stuff. And then, of course, you know, just wanted to get back into building something. And um, I, I knew people here in Ohio and uh, as far as developers, and I, I, I can't program anymore. I mean, even though I was really good back in the 90s and, and built that software, I really, you know, didn't keep up on programming, but I knew other programmers. So I connected with a, the developer, a programmer here um, in Ohio. And I was like, why don't we build something, you know, with all these uh, stores going online, all these, you know, small businesses that put their, especially with, with the pandemic and COVID and a lot of the stores needing to go online because they didn't, they didn't have customers for a little while because of the lockdowns. But, you know, so many stores have gone online. So what we decided to build was a search engine. So you could search and find products that are online. Obviously you can do that on Amazon, you can do it Etsy and you can do it Google kind of sort of, but you get mostly the big box and mostly the large, um, you know, stores, but there's all these online small stores that are out there. So anyway, we built a, a search engine. It's called Shop Smaller, not Shop Small, but Shop Smaller. <laughs> so you can go to shopsmaller.com and um, and you just type in, you know, what you're searching for, just like you would on Amazon or Google or, or even Target. And um, you can find products from all of these small businesses that have websites like, you know, joesbelts.com, you know, and uh, so it's been fun to build that. And, um, you know, it's not a moneymaker or anything just yet, but uh, it's something I want to, you know, kind of get out there and, uh, and see what kind of traction we can create. Yeah, yeah. Well, don't look now, right? But I'm, I'm already seeing somebody like, you know, uh, maybe an Amex or somebody out there who loves small business. I, you know, no doubt they'll be uh, knocking on your door one day. <laughs> Yeah, good stuff. No, I mean, we we just wanted to build something really cool and it is cool. So we, we call it Shop Smaller. Yeah, nice. Um, uh, so thank you so much. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, you know, I really appreciate it. It's, um, yeah, I, I'm going to put some stuff in the show notes there around Shop Smaller. And if anyone's interested in knowing more about it, please go and check out the website. Um, you know, I really appreciate it. Are, are you happy, Stuart, for people to reach out and uh, and contact you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you can go to shopsmaller.com and then my personal website is just stuartcrane.com. And that's my emails on there and phone number and all that. So you can go to shopsmaller or stuartcrane.com. Yeah, it'd be great. Fabulous. Um, I think I've got your LinkedIn uh, can, uh, uh, profile there somewhere as well. So look, we'll throw all of that into Twitter and whatnot. So yeah, we'll throw it all in the show notes. Um, Stuart, you've, you've been very gracious. Thank you very much for your time. And thanks again for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Simon. Brilliant. And uh, thank you all for joining uh, for this episode. I'm, I'm sure you've gotten a lot out of it. I know I did. Um, if you've, anyone's uh, needing some help thinking about, you know, really what is your business worth, um, feel free to reach out to exitadvisory.com.au and we'd be more than happy to talk you through that sort of stuff. Uh, otherwise, thanks for joining us and hopefully uh, you can join us for the next episode. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Wherever you are on your business journey, it's worth understanding what is driving value into your business and what could be holding you back. For more information, speak to the team at Exit Advisory Group by going to exitadvisory.com.au or send an email to ask at exitadvisory.com.au. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes.
Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.